Israel closes in on a new government, presumptive Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu faces a wide array of diplomatic challenges. The U.S.-Israel relationship, Iran, Russia, Ukraine, the Abraham Accords, and so much more. Our special guest this week, Lahav Harkov, senior contributing editor and diplomatic correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, which was founded as the Palestine Post. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to J.I.'s Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Throwing a little Jared, trivia in there for you at the, at the, in the intro. Uh, there, you, 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 you caught me off guard there. I, I knew that, though. I knew that factoid. I well, did. it's something that's been in the news, you know, getting a little bit more attention uh, as we people always are debating the the origin story and the history of, of certain words and connotations. You know, wanted to make our leadership uh, or leadership, our listenership a little bit smarter and a little bit more informed today. Well, there you go. There you go. I'm trying to think why I knew that. I researched the history of the Jerusalem Post for something recently. I think it had to do with the Morningstar case, as everybody has known, been tracking Morningstar and other ESG research firms and how they use sources and report on certain things. One of the interesting, funny tidbits that I learned about Morningstar is that uh, as their law firm that they hired, White and Case, had, had told people, oh, you know, they do use pro-Israel sources. They do use Israeli sources. They even reference the Jerusalem Post. Uh, of course, they only reference Jerusalem Post or JTA or others when it's a negative story about Israel, so they could say, hey, we use the Israeli press too. But, uh, but, but quite funny, but I wanted to do some analysis on explaining to readers when I published my report out of FDD, going deep on, on the research, which you can find available on FDD's website. Uh, I wanted to give context of what is the Jerusalem Post, and I gave the history that it was founded as the Palestine Post. Anyways, that's a long-winded way of saying, I like that trivia piece. It's good. Hey, happy to help, happy to help. All, All right, right. Anyways, should we get, get to it. our guests? Let's get to it. the guests. All right, go for it, Rich. Lahav Harkov is the senior contributing editor and diplomatic correspondent of the Jerusalem Post. She reports on Israel's relations with the world, the prime minister's office, the National Security Council, the foreign ministry, and much more. Lahav grew up in New Jersey, making Aliyah at age 17. She has a degree in political science and communications from Bar Ilan University. She is also, we should note, the co-host of Jerusalem Post's own podcast, The Yaakov and Lahav Show. Lahav, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. Uh, this week, obviously, we heard from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken at the J Street conference saying very clearly that the Biden administration would deal with a new Israeli government based on their policies, not on the personalities of certain ministers. That was a pretty big statement uh, to make, especially to that audience. Your just broad reaction up front on what you heard from Secretary Blinken and how this is all playing out. Yeah, I thought that was the right thing to do and, and to say. And I agree with you that, you know, he was speaking before an audience that might not have been satisfied with that answer. And he said it anyway. Um, you know, there there are some people in the um, presumptive government, let's put it that way, they've not been sworn in yet, um, who have policy goals that are going to be problematic for the Biden administration and problematic for, you know, the kind of mainstream um, organizations of U.S. Jewry. Um, and and for sure, the mainstream of U.S. Jewry as well, which which skews liberal. Um, 
but there's, you know, what people say before they enter politics and there's what they do when they're in politics. That's not to say that I think that these people are suddenly going to uh, be, you know, great liberals or something like that. But um, in general, coalition agreements, which is where we're in the process of putting those agreements together and a few of them have been signed, um, they usually are a lot more ambitious, you could say, than what ends up happening in reality. So I thought that that was a smart move. Well, so and and Lav, I, I kind of want to key in on what you just said because you know there's that off uh, that's that there's an off repeated saying that you what do you you um you campaign in poetry and you uh, you govern in prose right and so I, I know you know there's a lot of uh, people on the far left not mainstream left but far left of which I am not a member FYI Rich Goldberg that wanted to see uh, Tony Blinken come out swinging right and they want to see Joe Biden come out swinging swinging and say listen these people are crazy we're not going to deal with them and and do what some extreme members of Democratic caucus have said, and, the, and he just didn't go there. What do you think the Biden administration is thinking uh, and and trying to get accomplished with a speech like that to J Street? There's like a weird expectation where like, on the one hand, the US and Israel are almost as close as two countries could be. They're very close allies. And then on the other hand, you have people in the far left who think that that's a reason why the US should be harder on Israel than other countries. And to me, that logic never really made sense, right? So I, I think that the US and and the Biden administration as well is invested in this relationship. Um, it goes beyond, you know, it, it's it's involved in a lot of different sectors of government, um, and they're not just going to up and say, oh, we're done here, you know, before they actually know what this government is doing. And so I think they're just they're they're being reasonable. They're not giving in to pressure. Um, I don't know that also J Street people are really I mean, they they'll they'll end up voting for President Biden if he's the Democratic nominee again. <laughs> but, um, you know, he he campaigns to the center mostly. So I don't know that giving in to what is a, a pretty small group, um, certainly in terms of what they represent in, in U.S. Jewry and, and also, you know, which members of Congress show up, although they're doing better than maybe they had in the past several years. Um, you know, I don't know that that would have been smart politics for them either. You, you characterize this a little bit uh, of the, the radical left, the far left, and that's certainly a crew. But I mean, when you see a op-ed in the Washington Post from Aaron David Miller and Dan Kurtzer, right? I mean, I, I don't want to characterize them as radical left individuals, right? Certainly from an era of emotional attachment to Oslo in the 90s and early 2000s. And so- Can I tell you a story about Dan Kurtzer? Please, please, yeah. That I think people maybe don't know. In 1978, Kurtzer was the dean of Yeshiva College um, which is the undergrad program of Yeshiva University. And the Menachem Begin, the recently elected prime minister of Israel, the first right-wing prime minister of Israel, uh, was scheduled to speak at Yeshiva University. And Kurtzer boycotted the speech because of what he thought were Menachem Begin's extreme politics. Menachem Begin, who we know, went on to make peace with Egypt and conceded the entire Sinai to Egypt in order to make peace. Um, and I, uh, I think that reflects a lot of his, let's say, predictions when it comes to the region. Um, and uh, Aaron David Miller, I think, tends to be a little bit more 
cautious, I guess. But um, and so maybe from him, it's a little more surprising that he wrote a sort of threatening op-ed in the Washington Post. But but these are people who, you know, like you said, they're nostalgic for Oslo for 30 years. They've been um, beating the same drum that hasn't it didn't work. It maybe it looked like it was going to work in the beginning, but right now it didn't work. And they're like, you know, build a whole career on that 30 year old glory. Well, also there's this five year old. Isn't there this, this idea that only people who are of, uh, of the far right can actually make the concessions needed, you know, it, for some kind of a durable piece, right? Like historically. I don't think Menachem Begin was the far right. It's well, just, well, or um, people who are people who are right of center, right? Uh, they're maybe. they're the only ones who are capable. Look at Sharon, right? Like those are the people who can who have enough standing that they can't get called soft ever. So when they make yeah, a I mean, it would be a mistake to say Sharon made peace, but he did make a concession. A couple of the refrains that we're hearing, obviously, one is the social issues for Ben Gvir, Smotrich, and others. Um, and I feel like Netanyahu has addressed that one pretty head on in all the interviews he's done so far of saying, you know, LGBT, other type issues. I'm not giving concessions on nothing's changing. It's it's my government ultimately. I mean, yes, the and other no. one. He's only go giving, ahead, yeah. He's only giving interviews in English. He's not giving right. interviews to I mean, or, you know, if you want to give an interview to me or to my colleagues at Times of Israel, it would be different, even though it's in English, because like we actually know the details of that. He's able to speak in broad strokes because Americans are asking him questions in broad strokes. But anyway, continue what you were saying. So actually, that's a good follow up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Where, so where what do you think is actually happening? It's easy to say that I'll meet the press, right, when there's not a lot of follow up in the details. But right. Right. Can I mean, there, there's. First, there's two different issues at hand here, I think. First of all, um, this Avi Maoz, who's the head of the Noam party, which actually only has one seat in the Knesset. He ran as part of this broader block, and that's how he got in. Um, he keeps talking about how he's going to stop the Jerusalem gay pride parade. Now, I don't think that he can do that because the the re- it's it's been challenged many times, and the Supreme Court upholds it. And it would it would take years if they wanted to stop it somehow legally, but um, wait, but you know, isn't, that's BB, one isn't issue. BB fixing to like marginalize the Supreme Court, or is that I mean, just, you can't that's just, just do another... that like in a snap? And I also just I don't think um, what he wants to do is is pass a law where if the Supreme Court Israel doesn't have a constitution, right? So the Supreme Court strikes down laws. It's not based on an actual authority that it has in the law. It's sort of an authority it took upon itself. And there's a debate of whether that's legitimate or not. Um, and this isn't something that's a law. Like there isn't like a, they didn't like strike down a law prohibiting the, the parade. So I, I don't think that's even relevant to this specific case, but they, they could maybe in theory make it relevant. I think it would take years. I don't think this anyhow is going to be able to change to do judicial reform so quickly. Well, one of the questions I have is obviously you've covered the outgoing government extensively. You covered the prior Netanyahu government extensively, and now we have part three of Netanyahu coming back. We're right now, I think, talking a lot about the incoming government, which we want to ask a lot more questions about. But before we close the chapter on the outgoing government, what's your assessment there of the Bennett-Lapid era here? Accomplishments, flaws, faults, you know, as, as an Israeli reporter covering all this diplomatic side, what's your what's your assessment? I think Bennett and Lapid were not the same for starters, but I think overall they tried to do something admirable, which is that they tried to do something that would unite Israelis 
and tried to um, pursue policies that wouldn't be too divisive. And um, and they failed partly because of their own failures and partly because of how sort of maybe rabbit's not a nice word, but the, the opposition was really just wouldn't cut them slack for one day, even when they were doing things that, you know, this government would support if it was coming up in their time. Um, in terms of diplomatically, which is my area of coverage, um, there was a lot of just continuity from Netanyahu under Bennett. Um, he really didn't do a lot of things very differently. The big thing, I think, on Iran is that he was more willing to engage with the Biden administration um, than, you know, Netanyahu didn't want to engage on that at all. He said, you know, it's the JCPOA is completely not legitimate and it's a non-starter. Um, whereas this government said, we don't like the JCPOA, but we will try to work with the Biden administration to make like incremental changes that could make it less bad. Um, I think it worked for this government. Uh, you know, we could uh, we could quibble over whether the reason the talks failed or the, whether the reason Biden was tough on specific points in the negotiations was because of Israel or not. But certainly uh, Israel picked battles, you know, like in the nuances and the deal that ended up going their way. Um, so I thought that that was a positive change. There were some other things that, you know, I think they were a little overly optimistic about making, um, you know, like trust building steps with the Palestinians and that that would help because the Palestinian Authority is so weak. The steps are to the Palestinian Authority and it just doesn't make a difference to the average Palestinian that much. And and now we're in a wave of terrorism for the past, I mean, basically since like March, April, um, with some like, you know, spikes. But there, I mean, there's terrorist attacks on at least every week since then. And, um, and it just didn't work. And there was like a level of naivete, I think, in that of, of people who maybe aren't the most experienced in making these kinds of decisions. Um, so it's a, it's a mixed bag. I think they also trusted Jordan too much. Jordan is like, um, I'm a Jordan skeptic, let's say. <laughs> people are always talking about Jordan as this like uh, font of stability in the region and that we have to support the king. But I don't think he's stabilizing for Israel. I mean, okay, it's good that our longest land border is is stable for now. Like if the king is overthrown, that would be really, really bad for Israel. But he basically uses Israel as like his scapegoat all the time. Um, and, and I would say even encourages violence when it comes to the issue of the Temple Mount. And they gave him a pass for a lot of that in a way that like Netanyahu did. And so like on that specific issue, I was pretty critical of them. So coming back to something you said a minute ago about um, the interviews BB is giving for general consumption in America versus the interviews she's giving at home in Hebrew or in English, but he's not giving interviews at home. Okay. So, 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 (laughs) and, and that's, that's really what I wanted to get at. How, is he going to be able to dance, continue to dance on this head of a pin? Like he's going to be the prime minister shortly. He's going to have to talk to the Israeli press. Uh, it's going to become apparent that the messaging is slightly different or more than slightly different between what he's saying for American consumption versus Israeli consumption. And by the way, there are plenty of Americans who speak Hebrew. So when it comes to pass, how is he going to square that circle? He doesn't really give interviews to the Israeli press except for in election time. 
from like 2015 on since that election he basically only i mean he used to give a, an interview every year um like around russia shana um and that included j post and a bunch of the other major newspapers then he started like narrowing it and he was only giving to newspapers that he perceived as friendly and then it stopped he just doesn't give interviews and it's you know it's not like in the u.s where you have like the white house press secretary that like briefs the press every day like it doesn't work like that which is you know maybe convenient because i could like work from home but it's not convenient when it comes to actually trying to get information from people you know i'm constantly making phone calls and just like having to nag people instead of like actually seeing those people every day and and there being a level of transparency um but they're there was never a norm of a daily press briefing in Israel, but there definitely was a norm of giving interviews and a level of uh, at least some kind of access to information, which as Netanyahu's sort of, um, I would say like his circle of, of trust, of like trusted advisors got narrower and narrower, which is a trend that began around the time when he started being investigated for corruption. Um he just became less and less transparent and less and less accessible in Israel. And, and in the States, too, the only reason he's doing all these interviews is because he wants to sell books, which is legitimate, but it's not legitimate that it comes with, you know, radio silence in Israel. A time-honored tradition in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, interested in taking a look at some of the diplomatic issues that you've covered and that are still ongoing and some that may be on the horizon as the new government uh, comes in. Number one that I think of that has really caused a lot of debate on Capitol Hill, even among traditional supporters of Israel, been a very robust conversation, and I'm I'm curious your views on it, and that is uh, where Israel falls uh, in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, obviously, with a lot of strategic interests uh, in the north, in Syria. Um, Bibi Netanyahu, for many, many years, uh, having you know made these flights to Moscow, developed a personal relationship with Vladimir Putin. Uh, to be able to litigate Israel's interests in the region uh, with, with Russia's presence and influence. Um, but obviously with the invasion of Ukraine, we saw you know big, big push for Israel to be more forthright in its support for Ukraine uh, and uh, join in various uh, sanctions movements or, or other sorts of uh, ways of holding Russia accountable. Where do you see that debate today? Where do you see Israel's policy today? And where do you see it going under a Netanyahu government? I mean, there was a debate in the U.S. that I felt like in a lot of ways was not realistic, that people were acting as though Israel is the U.S. and has the kind of money the U.S. has or the, the size and power the U.S. has. Um, you know, that's not to say that Israel's not capable of providing any military aid, but like it just wasn't, you know, it, it just wasn't reasonable to think like the one thing people kept talking about is Iron Dome, right? Like Israel has 10 Iron Domes. And when there's uh, rockets coming in from Gaza, they're moved all around the country. They don't stay in one place. Like they're moved in order to cover the spots that they think are going to be trouble spots. Ukraine is 11 times bigger than Israel. You think if Israel gave up a couple of Iron Domes, it would really be significantly helpful to them. They wouldn't. And Israel can't give up all of its iron domes, can't manufacture them that fast. So that's just like one example of the debate not making sense. In any case, you're talking about the issue in the north. It's We have this um, deconfliction mechanism 
um, with Russia, which is to say that like Iran has a big military presence in Syria and Israel doesn't want them to become really entrenched near, I mean, at all, but especially not near Israel's borders. And so Israel will bomb Iranian weapons convoys or other sort of Iranian attempts to set up shop near Israel. And Russia just stays out of the way. Um, and Israel gives the Russian army a heads up because the Russian army also has a big presence in Syria, although less so now. Um, and Russia stays out of the way. And Israel doesn't want to jeopardize that because it's a big security issue. Um, it hasn't changed that much that that's sort of the consideration when it comes to not wanting to antagonize Russia too much. I mean, Israel has voted on Ukraine's side in every UN vote. I think there was one where Israel abstained because Ukraine has not voted in favor of Israel once since the war in Ukraine started. So there was one sort of tit for tat abstention recently, like a few weeks ago. But overall, Israel has voted against Russia and for Ukraine. And Israel's provided a lot of humanitarian aid and, and in public statements by mainly by Lapid, who was foreign minister when the war started and is leaving as prime minister now, um, you know, supporting Ukraine. Um, but, you know, it's it hasn't changed in terms of what the actual policy is. Now, Netanyahu, in the beginning of the war, said that Israel should have stayed out entirely. He was really critical of the government for saying anything. He didn't say we should take Russia's side, but he just said, like, why do we need to have anything to do with this? Eventually, and I think that it basically, if you look at the timing, it was not long after we started seeing evidence of Iranian involvement, of Iran giving weapons to Russia. Netanyahu started to, if not praise this government, <laughs> um, because he just doesn't have it in him to do that, um, to espouse a similar kind of policy. And now when he's asked about it, he said he's going to consider it the policy and review it seriously when he enters office. I really doubt that things will change significantly. There may be some more intelligence sharing with Ukraine, although there already is some intelligence sharing with Ukraine um, when it comes to Iran. I, I have trouble seeing Israel actually providing military aid to Ukraine. Um, Netanyahu, the deconfliction mechanism started under Netanyahu, and he certainly hasn't disavowed it. Uh, there would have to be an evaluation that Russia's presence in Ukraine is so small at this point that it doesn't matter to Israel's security. And I don't think that's the case just yet. I, Rich, I just want to juxtapose that because you have gone to great lengths to to criticize the Biden administration for having a consideration of Russia in the Iran talks, given the ongoing conflict with Ukraine, right? You are the, and, and so I guess, how do we, how do we juxtapose those two, those two views, right? So, so the United States clearly, um, had much more adversarial relationship with Russia, um, but still sort of keeps them, keep, keeps, a allows them to keep a toehold in the Iran talks. Um, Contrasted with Israel, who uh, is is openly neutral because of the need to deconflict in, in northern Syria, with good reason. Israel's right? not but, neutral. I mean, I just listed a whole bunch of pro-Ukraine things Israel's done. Israel right, just but, isn't but, providing military aid, which you know most countries in uh, the world are not providing military or, aid, or or more neutral than the United States. How about that? Okay. Uh, um, and and so I just want to, I guess. Rich, question for you, maybe because you've you've you know gone to great lengths to pile on, and, and I'm not I'm not playing gotcha. I'm just trying to like, it's I guess the the net net is that it's complicated, right? But uh, wanted no, I think the got the gotchas on on the Biden administration and on 
left wingers who think they have something on Israel here, right? Like that, that's about to, uh, got you to me. It's like, Oh, Israel. Oh, terrible. Israel not providing the iron dome system. When, uh, by the way, like, I've never, know, I've never said, I've threat. never said that. I'm just asking because we've, we've talked about, you know, meanwhile, their own administration is, you know, still, you know, playing footsie with the Russians behind the scenes. So, yeah. Or you know, the I, Europeans, they're like cap on Russian gas and oil prices, which is well, like basically ridiculous. market prices. <laughs> it's right, ridiculous. Right. Listen, I, 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 if I was advised, you know, I don't advise the Israeli government. That's not my role. I don't do that. Um, but my analysis of this is simply that, you know, the more Russia is drawn into this conflict and is draining its resources and potentially having to divert resources from Syria, opens a vacuum in Syria, which will either be filled by the Iranians or could be filled by the Israelis. And so there is an opportunity here in Russia starting to feel pressure to withdraw. And then, you know, as Iran enters the battlefield, huge opportunity to either get political support from allies to go take more aggressive action inside Iran, targeting UAV operators and stuff like that, as we've seen reportedly, the Mossad do, and others. Um, or, you know, at least have intel sharing, gather information on what the Iranian technology is, give, you know, practice tactics on bringing down the drones, et cetera. Anyways, anyways. So, I, I, uh, so could we go to the Iran file? Because I feel like I, I would like to know. Good segue. From, Good our, segue. from our expert, what do you think uh, the change um, in the short or, or in the medium and short term will be on the current Israeli policy towards Iran? Do, you, do we think now that Bibi will be prime minister again, it is time that the Israeli government gets kinetic and says, listen, enough of this. It's gone too far. The Biden administration has let them get too far um, to and they're, and they're finally going to um, move in a kinetic way on the Iranian nuclear program. Um, that's an interesting question. Look, I think that Netanyahu, I mean, like, first of all, even though a couple nights ago Blinken said that, like, oh, the talks aren't over, like, the, the talks have been over for months. And if that continues to be the case, then Netanyahu will probably be more open to working with the Biden administration on Iran issues. I mean, and also it's like Israel always worked with the, the U.S. on Iran issues. It's just a, a question of whether it's on the sort of highest diplomatic level or if it's just like military coordination. Um, but I, I just don't see from the Biden administration because they're like continuing to say that the talks aren't over, like they want to leave a door open for the talks. I don't see them going for anything sort of major military moves when it comes to Iran. And so it, it would have to be the kinds of things that Israel has done all along, like sort of sabotage missions or assassinations of important figures in the nuclear program. Um, and I um you know, and that and that happened a lot while Bennett was prime minister. It happened less in the last, I guess, six months now that Lapid is prime minister. Um, so, I, you know, it might be go up again to Bennett levels, which was fairly often uh, when Netanyahu was in office. But do we, but you don't see a sort of major change in, in sort of like open, open military action, which is, you know. I, I don't because... I, I don't know that like some kind of big open strike is going to stop Iran's nuclear program at that point. I think that opportunity was, you know, like 10 years ago or something. And and now the situation's different. They have a, the program divided up into a bunch of different sites. Parts of them are underground. And it's not just like you can drop a few bombs and you're done. I, I think that the military option is 
you know, Iran acted in a way that was very smart for them. And so the open military option is a lot more limited than it was. Just to zoom out a bit into the wider region, Abraham Accords file, obviously something you've covered extensively as well. Uh, we had the Abraham Accords uh, finalized uh, with additional countries having their own bilateral uh, arrangements with Israel under Netanyahu. We saw a period here of, you know, now a couple of years now, no additional states signing on, uh, even though that was the hope coming out of Abraham Accords. Bibi now coming back in, at least in his English American uh Interviews talking about how this is high on his agenda. He plans to add more states to the Abraham Accords. We have had now, you know, a series of disruptions in the U.S.-Saudi relationship, which have caused a lot of questions here. Where do you see Abraham Accords today? Where do you see it going under Netanyahu? So um, I think it would be great if we could have relations with more Arab and, and Muslim countries. I do think that a U.S. buy-in and U.S. encouragement is very important to making that happen. And I, I don't think the Biden administration is opposed, but I just think that it's not their priority. I mean, the Trump administration really, really focused and pushed this issue in its last months, you know. Um, and so Biden, we saw him sort of talk about it, encourage it in Indonesia, for example. And Indonesia is definitely an option, a possible country that may um, normalize relations with Israel. And there's def- there's stuff going on there. There's business relationships anyway, and, and sort of different kinds of machers trying to make it happen. <laughs> um, and I don't mean, I'm not calling Blinken a macher. I'm saying like real, like non-government, like business people who have like contracts with the government there trying to make it happen, American Jews and Israelis. Um, so maybe Indonesia could happen without a greater U.S. buy-in. But I, the Saudis, <laughs> I, I just don't see it. I mean, first of all, publicly, they keep saying that they need to see some sort of progress with the Palestinians. And I don't see that happening. I I don't think it has anything to do with Netanyahu being prime minister, by the way, there was sort of no chance of that happening under Bennett or Lapid either. Um, And, um, you know, to to make them change their mind, there would have to be some kind of really big sweetener that the Biden administration is not not going to give them um, at this point. Um, there's also a chance, I mean, as long as like King Solomon is in charge, right, there's another theory, like as long as he's in charge, it's not going to happen. But that once MBS is king, like he wants it to happen and then it will, which, you know, is also a reasonable theory. So who knows? So speaking of the Abraham Accords, what about, let's talk about the World Cup, right? Because there was some interesting uh, reporting that was mixed, right? You, you saw some of these videos of Israeli reporters on camera with crowds of Iranians around them, you know, kind of celebrating in the spirit of sport. Um, But the flip side of that is there's a lot of reporting that Israelis, uh, Jews not treated very well. um, And that, you know, even saw some stuff on, on, on the Twitter verse that while the, uh, you know, the Abraham Accords exist, that that we still have a ways to go in terms of people to people uh, normalization. What's your take? Um, so first of all, that, that's my take. I wrote a whole analysis about it that, um, <laughs> no, but I'll, I'll get into it. Cause I also think people misunderstood me a bit, but, um, I, I think that, yeah, that people to people and government to government are not the same thing. And in, in places like the UAE and Bahrain, um, you have the sort of like elite of those countries, um, who are into it. 
you know, and, and trying to, you know, not only build business opportunities, but try to build friendships and, and things like that. But when you see polling, like overall, the vast, like the majority of the country is not so enthusiastic about relations with Israel. And you just can't expect people to turn around on a dime when you're fed on like a diet of Al Jazeera, they're not going to suddenly become Zionists, you know, so um, and in a way, like it's, it's fine. You know, like these things take time. People need to get used to things. Um, but, but also, you know, and it also depends country to country. So like Morocco is a country that has more freedoms, you know, than the UAE and Bahrain. And yeah, and you're going to have great variety in public opinion in a country like that. You know, like, I mean, not to say that the UAE, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis are sort of led by the nose and they only do what their leaders say, but it's just a different situation. Um, in in the World Cup, like you have all these countries that are not even in the Abraham Accords. So like, right. I don't I don't know what people expected, like that, that it's some of the things that the journalists there and they're like sports journalists, right? Like maybe, so maybe I should cut them some slack for not understanding the situation as well as I do because I report on it every day, but uh, not to say they're dumb, but just to say they're not as focused on it as I am. So they seemed like shocked to their core. Like, and I'm like, no, like the Abraham Accords, they were huge. They're a really big deal, but they didn't like change the entire Middle East just yet. Um, and, uh, you know, so people need to, need to sort of be realistic and not naive about it. Um, I will say that it's mainly Israeli, from what I understand, is that it's Israeli media figures who are being harassed. It's people who are walking around with microphones with Hebrew letters on them and like that, you know, just putting it right out there that they're Israeli, which is not an excuse. You shouldn't be harassed for having a microphone with Hebrew letters on it, right? But um, I, the average Israeli, from what I understand, is not being bothered that much. I love the contrast with the Iranians uh, who who are there as well, and I've seen a little bit of mix, but like mostly like Iranians like having fun with some of these really uh, telecasts I've seen, like you know, just like crowding around, like thumbs up. And well, the, I mean, the whole much. the whole phenomenon of the of the Iranian national team and like all that went on with them at the World Cup is fascinating, right? Definitely. Like the, the 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 team was like not backing the regime and then their families got threatened and they had to bring them all into line. And like, that's like a whole subplot that's worthy of its own full podcast, right? Because, you know, or a book or a movie or something because fascinating and interesting to see how it plays out now that they're back in Iran after losing to the United States. Yeah, I think we're going to get some bad news there. Yeah, unfortunately yeah, sadly all right um rich you- I, I, yeah I, I'd like to ask about a swirling controversy I know you've written about this um, it, it was surprising to many of us and I think a lot of facts still unknown about what is really happening here and that is uh, the reported Department of Justice FBI investigation into an Al Jazeera reporter. Uh, who died uh, during a shootout uh, in Janine uh, several months ago. Uh, not clear to me that there's actually a formal investigation taking place. That was certainly the spin uh, when this was leaked out um, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, no crime of terrorism present, obviously. No real basis for the Department of Justice to prosecute, which is usually why you would investigate. FBI investigates deaths of Americans around the world all the time. That's not unusual. 
um, just to provide more facts to the families, et cetera. That's not a true criminal investigation. Um, that's, that's simply sort of asking questions and, and helping. Uh, the White House State Department swear up and down they didn't know about it, which is all the more puzzling since, as I understand it, a formal investigation request requires an official diplomatic note that passes through the State Department. Yeah, but Rich, Rich, if this, if it, well, if this one no, from the- my, my big question is, what is going on here? That's a good question. Um, and first of all, my understanding is the DOJ notified the Israeli Justice Ministry, and it didn't go from the State Department to the Foreign Ministry. But, um, you know, as far as Israel's concerned, like they're not going to allow IDF soldiers to be questioned by the FBI. Um, certainly, Defense Minister Benny Gantz and, and Prime Minister Lapid, they saw it as like almost an insult, you know, that the U.S. is not trusting uh, Israel's sort of transparency and Israel's processes, even though the U.S. was sort of there all along while Israel was investigating, you know, looking at the bullet, um, there, there were U.S. sort of uh, officials present the entire time. So I don't know how much they're going to be able to accomplish, if anything, really, because who, I mean, what can you accomplish from only talking to Palestinians, right? Like you, you need to have people on both the Palestinians aren't going to know the name of the soldier who did it, right? I don't even, I'm not even sure Israel knows the name of the soldier who did it because, you know, there were a lot of soldiers around and a lot of guns being fired. But wait, so hold on a second. But there, as far as we know, there is no actual open investigation, right? Rich, is that, that's what you said at the top? Well, it's my, that's my question here. There's, there's some sort of notification that was made from DOJ to, to the Ministry of Justice, which as you know, some former very senior people at DOJ have explained to me, is not exactly how it would work for a f- true quote unquote like investigation where you're requesting documents and interviews and stuff like that. But so it's definitely I, more than say, I mean, like there was a terrorist attack in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, and there was an American woman, a young woman, injured in the attack, and her family got an email from the FBI saying, "If you need our help with anything, let us know." I mean, it's definitely more than that. Yeah. And obviously, Jerry, as you know, major dip, um, political pressure uh, from Democratic senators led by Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, who has been really just, uh, I'll, I'll say he's been, he's been pretty bad on Israel, quite frankly. I think a lot of hopes for who we replaced in the Senate there uh, from Maryland. If you're listening from Maryland, you got a lot of problems with your U.S. senator there, really on a key committee controlling foreign aid, et cetera, for Israel, you know, trying to condition aid, been pushing for this investigation, wasn't satisfied by the joint results that came out from the U.S. special coordinator, a three-star American general who oversaw the process, which basically said, yeah, probably the Israelis, but complete accident. So, you know, maybe this is the FBI, DOJ just needing to check a box because a bunch of U.S. senators won't leave them alone over it. I I don't know. I mean, it certainly feels that way. Obviously, we can't be in the head of uh, of the folks at DOJ, but if the White House and the State Department are saying there's no investigation, you know, that's that's where the org chart goes, right? Yeah, I think I, a lot of you tell me, but my big concern here, well, two, one, obviously the hypocrisy of you mentioned Jordan before, and we know the Tamimi case. You've written about this. We've ha- we've had uh, Arnold Roth on the podcast previously talking about the loss of, of his daughter and many other children uh, in, in that in that blast and in many other blasts. And to be on the top most wanted terror list in Jordan, not being extradited, not being a major issue, 
but somehow you're going to open this investigation when it's already been ruled an obvious accident. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, A. But but B, I mean, we know the International Criminal Court wants to investigate America, wants to investigate Israel. And this is a core element of being a democracy, of being able to say we have rule of law, we investigate ourselves. You have no jurisdiction here. And I feel this is really undermining of that for both countries. Yeah. I mean, part of Israel's defense especially has been that Israel has a, a transparent and independent judiciary and, and, you know, we're able to investigate ourselves. And the U.S. always supported Israel on that front. And this contradicts that entirely, or at least it seems to. Yeah. So the new prime minister of Great Britain's shifting around the map a little bit. Uh, he's pledging to, to – uh, the new prime minister of Great Britain is pledging to outlaw BDS in the UK, and he's hinted before that he supports the snapback of UN sanctions. How do you see the Israeli-UK relationship today, and how do you see it in the months ahead? The US-UK relationship has been great in recent years. This BDS thing was in their party platform, or as they call it in Britain, they call it a manifesto. Um, Which, by the way, I love I love when parties have manifestos. I think it's yeah. you know, something old well, world about it. I feel like to, to Americans, like a manifesto is something that like a crazy person writes. Right, right. But, um, but yes, but in Britain, it's what they call their party platform. Um, in any case, so the BDS law was in there. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that there were such serious efforts before to actually pass it. I don't know that there actually will be, even though Sudex says there will be. But it'll be interesting to see. Um, when he, I don't, I don't remember all the names of all the different jobs there, but he had some sort of job that was like the minister in charge of local government or something. And he pushed, um, he did push a law to, um, not allow municipalities to boycott Israel. So he has a good record on that. And actually that's really his only record when it comes to Israel, because he just wasn't really in jobs that had much to do with foreign policy. So that's like the one thing when I, when, you know, it was the runoff him and Liz Truss. And I was like, you know, where do they stand on Israel? It was like the only thing he had done. So he has a good record on BDS. (laughs) Um, Overall, like Israel is one of the first countries that the U- that the UK signed a trade deal with after Brexit, um, and during COVID there was a lot of like health and science cooperation, research and things like that. Um, a lot of tech cooperation. They've opened like a, a very significant, like a big tech office in Israel, trying to build cooperation between British and Israeli companies. So things are good. Um, you know, you look at the Labor Party as well. Just um, today, as we're recording, um, Keir Starmer, the head of the Labor Party, said he's not going to let Jeremy Corbyn run in labor. Um, you know, I think there are still people in the Labor Party who share Corbyn's opinions on Israel, but they're not in the leadership anymore. And more relevant and more important at this point is that the anti-Semites are pretty consistently being kicked out of the party because um, we should you know, I, I also care about the Jews in the UK, not just what UK thinks about Israel. My, my big question on, on the Sunak government is um, Boris was unfortunately terrible on Iran. High hopes, you know, thought he was going to come in, shake things up, join, you know, with the Trump administration on the snapback and all that kind of stuff. Never happened. Um, clearly had either an affinity for the Iranians or just, you know, the foreign office just completely had had control as they have had for many, many years on this issue, which is, which is not good. Let's just put it, put it mildly. Uh, Sunak has talked in private and in different meetings on the campaign trail about his interest in snapback actually mentioned it um, in, in one large meeting I saw recorded. I think maybe you reported it. And my question is, 
that would take a lot of courage to stand up and break from France, break from Germany, the U.S., and say, I'm doing this, I'm pushing this. But you would think with the protests going on with Russia, the nuclear escalation, now is a great time to do it. And he seems like a person who doesn't really care what other people think. What are you hearing? Do you think that's actually a possibility? Look, it's something, again, it's something that he's been talking about. He's not someone who's so... I don't want to say he's not strong on foreign policy, but it's just like not his focus. Right. And that's going to be like a a pitched battle, you know, like he can't it's not just something that he can do so easily. I mean, technically, you can do it easily. Right. Anybody, any of the relevant countries can just say they want to snap back sanctions and the rest are supposed to go along. But politically, it's difficult. And so I wouldn't like expect him to just like snap and be done with it because he said he's going to do it. Um, but I think that definitely now is the time with, like you said, with the protests, with them helping Russia, you know, there's no time like the present. It's not, you know, there's, if they don't take the opportunity now, like when are they going to take it? All right. With that, it is time for the, for the best 90 seconds of the limited liability podcast, which is the lightning round, which by the way, Rich, I think we ought to get some theme music for the lightning round that we can like introduce the lightning round with. I think that would make it a little bit more dramatic. It should be like that moment from the natural when the lightning. Yeah. Strikes. Like, doo, 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 you know, something like that, like yeah, the lightning yeah. round. Okay. Um, so we're going to ask you a couple of short and quick questions, get a little bit of a better sense of who you are as a person. Uh, and here we go. So favorite, favorite Hebrew word or phrase and profanity is totally allowed as long as it's not in English. Oh man. (laughs) Favorite Hebrew word or phrase. Uh, how about it's if my grandmother had wheels, (laughs) which is like, if you say so like a hypothetical, then there's like this response in Israel, like, well, if my grandmother had wheels, then she would be a bus. If um, pigs fly. Yeah, yeah if pigs yeah, fly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. I like that. I never, I've actually never heard that before. I love that. I love that. <laughs> All right. Yes. Rich, wow. Rich, okay. you, you go. Favorite, yeah, let's do it in Yiddish now. Do it in Yiddish now. You're, you're, you're a Jer- Jersey girl. Do it in Yiddish now. Yeah. Um, well, I can't do that. I don't know that phrase in Yiddish, but. Um, <laughs> What's your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Maybe for clamped. Oh, I like for clamped. I love for That's a good bubby word. I yeah. had recently a whole Twitter thing. I asked people to share their favorite Yiddish um, curses to direct at Kanye West. My favorite Yiddish <laughs> curse is may you grow like an onion with your head underground, but I, I am not like really able to say it in Yiddish. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. Though. We will investigate that. One um, all right. Yes. <laughs> Best falafel in Israel. Oh, Falafel Frischmann. It's in Tel Aviv. They're best known for their sabich, but their falafel is excellent. Noted. Okay. And finally, best shawarma in Israel. You know, I'm not such a shawarma person. It's a little heavy for yeah, me. Yeah, I, I, I thought that, you know, it's really a toss-up because if somebody's really like, oh, I know exactly where my best falafel is, 50-50, they don't actually eat shawarma that much because they're like, well, let me tell you where the best uh, like, shawarma like is. Like I'm a falafel connoisseur, but not necessarily a shawarma connoisseur. Yeah, exactly. And I, if, if I'm already having like Israeli grilled meats and whatever, I prefer the like, you know, the shish kebab types. Of the okay, where, where would be your favorite shish kebab? Yeah, little, 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 little Yemenite action off Dizengoff, yeah. Where, where would be your um, favorite shish kebab? There's this place called Kaful, which is like right next to the Shuk in Tel Aviv. It's very good. 
There we go. Excellent. We heard it here. Laha Arka of Jerusalem Post. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.